Hi, Stanley. Hey, Jerry. How are you? I'm doing well. Doing well. How are you? I'm depressed. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, well, um, okay. That was the show. <laughs> Maybe we'll see you next week. Maybe not. So we read uh, Post Journalism and the Death of the Newspaper. Or Wait, what's it called? Post Journalism <laughs> and the Death of Newspapers. The Colin. Media After Trump by Andre Mir, who, by the way, seems to have changed his name since oh, okay did you not notice this um well his real last name is long and slavic right uh but he he cites um several papers in the book or maybe even he cites also previous books by himself but the name of the of himself before is a long and slavic name that starts with mir uh-huh. so it's interesting i guess he just in the last while changed his name to shorten it yeah. Anyhow, well, you know what, you know yeah. what Mir, Mir means? I'm not sure if he's Russian or Ukrainian, but um, uh, do you know what Mir means? No, what does Mir mean? It means world. Ah. And peace. Really? Yes. That's nice. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so this is, in a way, a very Russian book. Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> Uh, I tried to read it with like Boris Badenov's <laughs> voice <laughs> in my head. Sometimes it it definitely helped. Yeah, uh, it's it's very it's depressing to me anyway um, because it kind of um, presents no exit. Uh huh. <laughs> uh, yeah, like literally at the, at the end, it's kind of like oh well, it's kind of, it's all needless and hopeless. <laughs> <laughs> right there's a kind of there's a certain hopelessness um, yeah spoiler alert uh, uh, to it um so why don't you okay so i guess what did you first of all what did you think of the book and then maybe we can start describing it oh sure so well what i think um you know with, with all books like this that are trying to explain kind of a, a massive phenomena. I'm, I'm never sure how much is being left out, how much is being right. emphasized or overemphasized. Um, I found it pretty convincing mm-hmm. um, and interesting. Uh, it's kind of hard to talk about what I thought of the book without getting into what it said and, and especially how it said it. Um, but I enjoyed it. It, like the other books that we've read, as soon as I'm, you know, in it, reading it, and looking around IRL, mm-hmm. you can't help but notice that, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. It's this kind of describing exactly what's happening yeah. uh, right now. In fact, when I flipped on my iPad, and I, I don't know how this things work anymore. Like I flipped left to right, and it pops up like the news wiki or news whatever. News widget from yeah, the news widget, which I, I need to get rid of. Um, it's just every single story there. <laughs> is like he would have predicted that of course of course you would see this <laughs> uh, and for exactly the reasons he kind of outlined yeah uh and so uh, and, I, and this is probably frustrating for listeners all three of them who, <laughs> who maybe haven't read the book but <laughs> us talking about it without explaining what the book is but i'm going to do it a little bit longer um and sort of say that this book is so this book, it cites Martin Gurry's Revolt of the Public. And um, I know Martin Gurry has talked about Andre Mir and his writings. And so in, in Revolt of the Public in many ways is a media, a book about media. Um, and so there's a lot of similarities. And I think, well, uh, I mean, start with the fact that they're both were originally self-published, right? Yep. Um, and we can get into that, uh, but um, to me, both this, this book is uh, as important to me as Revolt of the Public is, because what it does is that it it's a book of analysis, right? So there's very little as far as facts um, or you know, just knowledge that this book gave me that I didn't have before. Okay. 
right? As you're reading it, you're, you're like, yep, that's, I, I know that. And I know that. And I know that. So there's nothing new here, but what he does is simply analyze and basically build a logical explanation for why things are the way they are. And I think he, he succeeds um, really well where I, you know, a lot of insights that I, that I didn't have before. Um, yeah. So, um, so yeah, it's like, there's nothing new. It's like, you know, all this stuff, but then when he puts it together in the way that he does, you're like, yeah, this makes perfect sense. And, it, and it's, uh, it's pretty terrifying. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, you probably knew it because you're, you're a man of the world and very intelligent. And no, but like, you, and, like I knew, knew it, but not, not the specific numbers or I see. Um, like, you know, the history of the newspaper business. Oh, sure. Which, right. Which he kind of gives like a, a yeah, a I didn't know that. Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, but, but, that, but actually, you know, you kind of really don't need, I guess what I mean is you don't need the history of the newspaper that he gives to talk about his main thesis. Sure. Yeah. Um, and the last thing I'll say is that whereas Revolt of the Public is, you know, he sort of explains why we're seeing the moment in history that we're seeing. And you're like, wow, this is exciting. Uh-huh. <laughs> this book explains it. And you're like, this is terrifying. Not terrifying, but, but just kind of, it's hopeless. You just, you just feel hopeless uh, after you finish reading it. So why don't we... Um, Okay, so what would you say is this thesis? If you can, I mean, there's several, but. Sure. So let's see if I can describe the thesis. So the thesis, I think I highlighted the thesis 17 times in the book, is that the structure of production of information has changed. Mm -hmm. And the media as we like you and I or people in their like say thirties and older knew it uh, doesn't really exist anymore. And the new structure of production explains why we are so polarized, why the media seems to be even more uh, partisan and also why it seems like there are maybe a few really large winners like the New York times and the post and the rest of the ecosystem is kind of collapsing, especially at say like the local level or even like the regional level. Yeah. But even, yeah. uh, I think that even, I think he goes further to suggest that the New York times has only bought itself a reprieve. Right. And right. Yes. It's doomed. And and he's like five to 10 years. Um, And so, I mean, it's, so yeah, I think everything you said is right. Um, I would actually say that, that his thesis is, so obviously this is a book about media uh-huh. and about journalism in particular and uh, about how the change in the structure of media is, just, you know, is destroying slash has destroyed what we understood as journalism. But to me, really his bigger point is the effect of this, which is polarization. Right. It's really, a, it's really, a, it's about polarization. Is that? It's about family, Jerry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's that all, all the incentives that exist today lead us to, um, to polarize. And, and it's the incentives of the media. It's the incentive of, of um, individuals. It's the incentive of politicians, of institutions. It's to, um, you know, just cohere and polar opposites of specific issues and then just become more and more uh, extreme and agitated. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and this can only end in tears, right? So, <laughs> um, okay, so maybe we should go through and just explain mm-hmm. why he says this. So, um, really this all starts with a change in the business environment, right? So basically you have the internet happens and, um, as a result of the internet happening, uh, advertising leaves, um, the media 
and moves to online platforms because it's cheaper and better. Yep. As a result, the media have lost um, their main source of income, right? The thing that pays for it. Yep. Um, because as he points out, um, news is a public good. Uh, you know, it, you, you can't exclude <laughs> people from it. Um, and uh, so as a result, you, you need to have something else that you're selling. You're not actually selling the news to anybody. Um, and what the media had been selling um, was the audience. And it was selling it to advertisers. When advertisers leave, well, they try to sell the news to the people, but the people don't, you know, they're not going to pay for that. Especially yeah. when at the same time, you've got new media, right? You've got social media where you have what he talks about, you know, the, uh, what does he call it? The um, emancipation of authorship. <laughs> uh, something, yeah. <laughs> right. Where, you know, you know the news before you pick up the paper or go to NewYorkTimes.com. You know the news because you've seen it on Twitter. Yeah. And you've seen it on Twitter because somebody who was there already tweeted about it and the word already got cut around. Right. And quite frankly, because the reporter who is writing the New York Times story is also tweeting out the relevant news before he even files the story. Yeah. Or even more importantly, the story is filed and published and you just see the headline. And right. That's enough. That's enough. Yeah, yeah. it really is. Right. Uh, the quanta of news. Is that the quantum, the quanta of information as he quantum calls information it. is shifting. Yeah. yeah. And, and you get the viral editor. Uh, all these things. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of things in here. It's better if you, if you think of it in Russian, like the, the Russian voice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can I kind of some of that? Uh, give, give me a, a, what is it? Emancipation of authorship. <laughs> Quanta of information. Uh, Liberation. Um, anyhow, so, so where, where were we? Um, yeah, so, so the, the media goes away. Um, or I should say the media loses its income. It, it flails around trying to find something else to, to do. So they, I love this um, uh, metaphor he uses about, what do you say, a monkey? Oh, yes. <laughs> the cute little monkey. The cute little monkey, right. So yeah. he says, you go to Cancun, and, there's, oh, and you know, you used to have to talk, you know, these guys with a Polaroid camera who would take your picture on the beach and sell you the, you know, the picture. Yeah. Of course, now with cell phones, everybody's got a camera on them and nobody wants a stupid Polaroid. Um, and so um, what they figured out is that they needed to have something else to sell you. And what they came up with was like a monkey or a parrot or something yeah. or a sombrero, right? So they would come to you, <laughs> they'd give you the monkey to, to hold. They'd take your picture with your cell phone and then you'd pay them for that. Yeah. And so the media went on a quest to try to find a cute little monkey. And so they've tried all kinds of things like events, uh, um, wine clubs, wine clubs, which yeah. I mean, honestly, the New York times a lot. I, I forget he had the numbers in there, but a lot yeah, of it was, it was crazy. It's revenue comes from its food section. And I know this from friends who are foodies. Um, it's, it's huge. And it just subsidizes the rest. It's again, it's a, it's a public good. It's yeah. where you, you sell the one thing you can exclude people from and then uh, that subsidizes the, the public good. Uh, but all these things have failed. And the one thing that seems to have stuck is sort of a membership mm -hmm. uh, or you know, a subscription, but really membership. What is he? He calls it the Donscription. Donscription. So Which donor subscription. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Uh, and so with Donscription, <laughs> what people are paying for is not the news, but they're paying for you to make the news available to other, to other people. And why would they do that? Um, because they want a particular view of the world. Right. To be out there. Number one, sort of um, as a, as a cause. Uh, 
but also um, as a way to validate their own uh, sort of their own pre, you know, their own views. You're right. It's it's you know he he has all these lists and schemas of what people are actually paying for, and one of them, and he kind of he does try to separate them as validation or validatory. Just you want to hear that you are right all along. <laughs> we all do. Right. Um, but then you also want to broadcast uh, the good word uh, to all the heathens. Yeah. So um, kind of the subscription or non-scription membership model uh, does both. Right. Uh, although. I don't think, I think you would say that people aren't paying for the validation. Validation is something that media does. And mm-hmm. in fact, he, I think you would say that validation is one of the few things that, right, you already know the news. You go to the, uh, uh, to the media for validation. Right. So that's something it does. But really when, you, when the people who actually pay, uh, pay for that, you know, for the, that slacktivism, that, mm-hmm. that cause, you know, yeah. <laughs> And so what this means is that the media, in order to take advantage of that model, can't just be publishing down the middle news, right? Right, yeah. Um, it has to pick a side in, uh, you know, in, all, in every social issue. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, has to pick, you know, it has to be a cause. It has to be fighting for a cause. Um, and that's different from the, world before when there was an advertising model where uh you know what it what it was incentivized to do given who was paying which were brands and 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 corporations who were advertising what they wanted to you know the agenda that they were selling uh was sort of um how would you put it not well, it's to quote Michael Jordan, Republicans buy sneakers too. Right. It was, and, and Amir uses the um, the Chomsky Herman. Yeah. Uh, what is what is the name of the book? The uh, Manufacturing Man, Consent. Manufacturing Consent. So he kind of uses that model, yeah, a very kind of left wing Marxist model to analyze why why does the media just kind of promote very middle brow down the middle information. And it's not because they're evil or, you know, evil, craven Republicans or centrist Democrats. It's the structure of the media business. You won't exist if you, you know, are constantly pumping out uh, depressing <laughs> news news about mine workers dying in a collapse or something like that. So, you know, you're not going to sell cars or TVs or makeup with that. So the the advertisers will only fund media that you know, puts out happy, happy stories, uh, or at least not necessarily happy, but stories that create demand for their products and don't turn off consumers um, by putting a picture of your car next to right. a horrible story about a massacre yeah. in an African village. Right. And so, um, and, you know, and, what's, and again, this is very multi-layered. Yes. So this book is a little frustrating um, because it's very repetitive. Uh, and it's funny, I, at first I was like, man, you know, this book really could have used an editor. I still think it really <laughs> You didn't change your mind. Yeah. I didn't change my mind. It really can use an editor. And I think that's part of, part of the function of that is, is this is a self-published book, uh-huh. right? Um, and so that's a consequence, I'm, I'm, you know, who knows, I don't, I, doesn't seem like it had an editor. Um, but at the same time, I think part the reason why he is so repetitive is because he is explaining lots of different um, inter, you know, phenomena that interplay with each other. Right. And so he kind of has to explain things again and again from different angles. Um, so uh, yeah, it's funny that, and this kind of ties with Martin Gurry's book, with revolt of the public, but it's this book is is, is a lot about how, oh gosh, it's it's so hard. It's, it's like a dialectic, <laughs> but it's not just that the internet happened and um, advertising moved there because it's more efficient. It's be, it's that social media also happened. Right. Those are kind of the two 
I mean, two, two blades of the scissors, like you. Yes. Yeah. Uh, keep going. But I do wonder what, what would have happened if the, you had the internet, what we did, right? Um, right. And for a while, there, just, there wasn't really social media. Correct. Like what would have happened if there was no Facebook or Twitter? Yeah. Like it probably wouldn't be this bad. I think so, right? Um, yeah. Imagine the world where you had blogs, but blogs are still, um, you know, literary. Right. They're right? Medi- medium length, not like long form, but they're not tweets. But, I mean, blog by itself is, um, it's a, a, a log, right? And it's, yeah. it's, it's um, reverse chronological in order, right? And um, people would go, to different blog, you know, play. Anyhow, it, it had a lot, blogs had a lot more in common and this made me sort of realize this more than, than I thought. Blogs had a lot more in common with old media than they do with social media. Social media is like an, a beast apart. Right, yeah. Um, so where was I going with that? <laughs> uh, Multi, multiple oh, layers kind of yeah, hard yeah, yeah. to, yeah. So, so this kind of, I mean, yeah, I don't think I can keep a narrative here because it's, again, it's, there's so many pieces, Uh, but here's going to what you're saying about, I wonder if it's, if it'd be different if we'd had the internet, but not social media. Um, I think that there's a um, tension here between Guri and Mir. Uh, uh, So Guri kind of just talks about the information tsunami, Uh right? That it's just that the internet happened and a wave. So you had a lot more information that you ever had before being produced. Um, and to him, it's kind of, and I hope I'm not um, uh, misquoting him or misinterpreting him, but to Guri, it seems to be simply a function of the quantity of information that's available. Um, okay. Not the kind. Um, and, but it's funny because that, Guri points to um, the Arab Spring and Occupy Wall Street and Los Indignados uh, in Europe and, um, you know, Tea Party, et cetera. And Mir actually says, no, it's, it seems to be about social media. And what happens is as different cohorts um, come onto social media, you get these different phenomena. So he talks about how in the 2000s, uh, it was sort of young, urban, educated people who first got social media. Yeah. And the result was you got the Arab Spring and Occupy Wall Street and Los Indignados, right? So this, these are basically progressive versus the establishment. And what social media does is that it makes you realize for the first time that there is an agenda uh, that has been suppressed by the old media. And not suppressed in any, you know, nefarious sort of active or or, or pre uh, premeditated way. It's just that, as you say, an outlet that would carry that agenda would never get any advertising. Right. Uh, so what social media allows the public to realize there's there are more there, you know there are other agendas um, that are kind of suppressed. Uh, and so you get these different phenomena. Then in the 2010s, basically it was the boomers that finally- <laughs> They finally got it. They finally got it. They got onto Facebook, right? They, they, put, the, they put Twitter on their, uh, what's the cricket phone? What's they're the, cricket. What's the, they're, they're, no, they're um, jitterbug. <laughs> they're jitterbug phone, yeah. <laughs> and so, so again, they see there's an agenda that is also being suppressed. And, so, and th- that gets you Trump and Brexit and, uh, and all of that. Uh, and that's basically the conservative masses versus, the, you know, the liberal institutional establishment. Uh, anyhow, I'll stop there. <laughs> see what else. See what. The, why don't you take it from here? Oh um, no! Oh no! No no! Uh, I mean, I, like you said, there's there's way too much. Um, yeah, I, I, to kind of go back to the the two things that that caused all this was, you know, so, you know, we, we get the internet and all the advertisers flee and, you know, being alive in the early two thousands, I remember people complaining that the classifieds were being just destroyed by mm-hmm. uh, Craigslist and all the others. Um, so that happened, but the social media aspect of it, what's really interesting is just 
it just removed, well, for a lot of people, it removed the need to even read mm-hmm. newspapers or watch TV or anything. Even go, why would you even go to NewYorkTimes.com? You have Facebook, you have Twitter, you have whatever. Um, but you're not really, like he points out, you're not really consuming, you can call it news, but it's not news in the traditional sense. So he talks about what's the smallest like quantum of information that people consume now. And it used to be like you would buy a newspaper. It would be the newspaper, yeah. Or a magazine or a book or, you know, maybe you just read the, the business section or the funnies or whatever, but you still bought the whole thing. And then maybe it would, on, when people started going online, it was, okay, I'm just going to go read the story on the New York Times. And now it's, it's not even a story. It's just a headline or what somebody says about a headline. And according to him, at least, there's just no go, no, there's no going back from that, that, you know, people are perfectly fine just consuming the headline about a headline. So what are these legacy media supposed to do? And <coughs> that, that, to me, that's kind of the more interesting thing. I mean, you know, the advertisers all leaving is, is also interesting, but you can, you could imagine they'd find some way of getting around it and like they've been trying but it's the fact that nobody really wants to buy what they're selling. Mm-hmm. Like no matter how many subsidies they get, no matter, you know, Steve Jobs' widow could dump a billion dollars <laughs> on, you know, the LA Times and the Chicago Tribune and pick another one. And in five years, I mean, they're probably going to be bankrupt <laughs> anyway, because, you know, well, it's expensive and, and nobody, nobody will pay you for that stuff because they can get it just from somewhere else, even though you're, you're the one producing it kind of. Right. And why of the time? Well, but also why would Steve jobs widow dump a billion dollars on you? If all you're doing is just providing, I mean, I, I get it. They, you know, she wants to uh, uh, subsidize the continued uh, institutions of democracy, but give me a break. Right. <laughs> I'm assuming a very like philanthropic um, mindset, right? Not that she, but well, I'm she bought the Atlantic, right? So obviously yeah. she has some sort of agenda she wants to push and that's, that's fine. Uh, billionaires are allowed. No, but he talks about um, uh, Jeff Bezos buying the Washington Post. Sure. And, you know, uh, he- and To me, that's a little different, right? Why? Well, at least to me. So I think magazines- I think people are more willing to deal with magazines having some sort of bias or slant and it's, it's not really news. I mean, obviously they do like investigative reports, but it's, it's mostly commentary and like analysis analysis and like middle brow cultural stuff. And I think people, you know, but that's, that's my point. What I'm saying is um, even if you, uh, I wouldn't say accept, but e- even if you want to give the benefit of the doubt to um, Jeff Bezos, that he's buying the post out of purely philanthropic motivation, right? He wants mm-hmm. to, um, you know, the Grams, you know, can't keep doing it. Um, somebody's got to keep this thing afloat because it's an important institution to our country. And so he steps up. Even if you accept all that, he also can't have the post um, publishing Tom Cotton or something, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> because that's well, bad for his reputation. That's bad for his business, right? That's bad for- uh, his, Yeah, for maybe, maybe now. I don't know if it would have, when did he buy it? Early 2000. No, you get my point. Yes. You get my point, yeah. Well, you know, that's, so that's, that's, you know, when Mir is analyzing the different ways to fund newspapers now, right? And, um, one of them is obviously just having a billionaire own it or some rich guy or whatever. Um, this is not new. Uh, you know, people, rich people have owned newspapers before. And what he, it's interesting because he points out that, yes, it's, you know, it's maybe not great to have a very, very specific person with a lot of very specific interests owning a newspaper, but everybody knows that he owns the post. Right, uh, <laughs> including Donald Trump, right? So whenever anything happens, whenever there's a story that some people don't like, or let's say the Post decides not to cover something that could affect his bottom line or his personal life, um, everyone is watching the Post like a hawk. Right. Because they know who owns it. So in a weird way, it does, you know, if, if they want to stay, 
yeah, it, it, it creates this accountability if they want to maintain some sort of veneer of we're a real newspaper, you know, we're not Buzzfeed or something. We're, we're, we're the Washington post. Um, and the same is true of, you know, whatever, like the LA times, I guess they're owned by an amazingly named local doctor <laughs> uh, uh, who bought it when it was, you know, going bankrupt. So if there's a story that could affect them, presumably other newspapers, lots of people are watching and, you know, they're going to hold it to account within reason. Um, this is always obviously happening at the margin. Um, but the other models where it's some wonderful philanthropic organization like the Ford Foundation or the billions of other foundations that seem to exist, you know, they own it and people don't because, you know, they're a foundation. They're wonderful. They're, they're so fuzzy and lovely and they want to support democracy and the news business. Nobody really wants to look or has looked too closely at how they, how they manage, well, not manage the newspaper, but, you know, how their ownership or support of the news. Right. So foundations news. aren't going to, typically foundations aren't going to own. Uh, uh, yeah, they don't own them, but yeah. they're benefactors. Right. I mean, I, I guess an exception to that would be the Atlantic, actually. Um, but it might as well be. Uh, sure. Yes. Her. Um, but yeah, so you, you get foundations and so, you know, they give grants and of course they're going to give grants, um, tied to again, a cause, right. Or, right. Um, and they're not going to give grants to people who are, you know, who are, who are running certain agendas that, that don't fit what, what they want. Um, but, yeah. but, you know, but anyhow, but he, he points out that these things are, aren't going to last. Right. Uh, right. So First of all, I think except for maybe uh, the moons with the Washington Times, maybe. <laughs> okay. um, there really aren't any, you don't have, like Steve, um, Jeff Bezos owns the Post, but he doesn't run it as a philanthropy, right? It's still a business and he's actually um, turned it into a much more efficient business. And same thing with the foundations. Uh, the foundations don't own these papers, they give grants, and the grants that they give aren't enough to cover everything. The thing still has to be run as a business. Right. And the one business model that seems to have um, offered some hope is this non-scription model. Uh, and so one thing that I, that I think he points out, which I think maybe goes to to the stories being the way they are in your uh, Apple news widget uh -huh. is that um, if, if you're, if, if what you're selling is a cause and people already know the news, then you're not going to be writing news stories. You're going to be writing opinion stories, right? So yes, journalism is a lot less news um, these days, and it is a lot more opinion. And you see this everywhere, right? I mean, you go to the front page of the New York Times, and half of the front page is basically the opinion page. Um, a good maybe quarter of it is labeled news analysis, uh -huh. which means <laughs> this is a label we put on things where our news reporters are writing opinion. Uh-huh. And then the rest is sort of news, but it's all news about, um, you know, racial injustice in America. So, uh, yeah. So anyhow, it, it the, the incentives work in such a way where um, you you end up with um, basically opinion that you are selling. Um, to people who want to be part of a cause and promote a cause. Mm -hmm. But the stuff that people are writing isn't really trying to convince the other side. It's just trying to validate the views of that side um, and gin up, and this is a very important, gin up anger on that side, especially about the other side, um, so that there's more demand for it. Right, so that there's more transcription, more transcribers. Yes, more, more, yeah, more, more members. Yes. Right, and so yeah. you you have this incentive to 
agitate and agitate and agitate and be more shrill. And it's again, I mean, there's so many layers to this, but this means that it has to be in symbiosis with the other side. <laughs> yeah. Right. Cause the other side is doing the exact same thing. Um, they're ginning up their Donscribers against you and they're producing opinion that isn't meant to convince anybody except the same side. Right. So, but that means that they, that they have to kind of agree and again, not literally come to an agreement, but evolutionarily they will try different things until they agree on topics where they can polarize. And those are the topics that become what we talk about. Donald Trump being kind of the, the, the topic of, of the last uh, you know, few years since, since this phenomenon. Yes. Yeah. And the amazing thing is that it just, it just kind of, it spirals mm -hmm. until you're having, so my girlfriend likes to watch the Housewives yeah. <laughs> franchise and, <clears throat> and it's become very decadent in the last <laughs> few years. Uh, more so than before, because it used would to you say, Stanley, would you say, what, what's the word? Flush? What is it? Oh, uh, what was the Russian word? Yeah. Poshlust. Posh or poshlust. Poshlust. <laughs> yes. Go on. I'm sorry. Look it up, people. It's in Navikov. Um, so it used to be that these women would fight about actual things, uh, as, as far as that goes, <laughs> on a fake TV mm -hmm. show. And now the fights are all about what someone said about someone else and what that person said about someone else's friendship. Right. So this is basically all you see on these shows and really what you see in the, in the quote news, because it's not just Donald Trump did this thing. Like that only Donald gets Trump you so invaded far. this country. Donald yeah. Trump cut this program. Yeah. Right. I guess he hasn't inv technically invaded anything. So. Right. Uh, but yeah. And it, it, that only gets you so far and everybody knows already because of social media that he did this thing. So then it becomes, look at what this horrible person said about this thing that Donald Trump did. Or this thing Trump said and what this person said about this thing Trump said. Yeah. And can you believe what they said about what I said? <laughs> I didn't mean that. And then it's just, you know, and the nice thing as, as he kind of points out is like, well, you can just do that forever. Right. <laughs> um, you know, you never have to address any actual facts or any reality. Um, you can just get into these long, stupid fights about what he said, she said. And apparently people will pay you for that because that's really kind of what they want to hear. Um, yeah. and, and, and go on. Yeah. So what I don't remember in the book is whether he talks about what happened first, the polarization. I mean, obviously there's always like capital P polarization. Obviously there's, you know, partisanship right. all the time in this country. I don't know if he talks about if that started bubbling up and the media, because of what happened to his business model was kind of quote forced to latch onto polarization and polarize further, or if they actually created it themselves again, not necessarily through some sort of evil motive, but just, uh, because of the way their their business model is, so I don't remember that. But I imagine it's it's kind of like a it's a feedback loop. It's a feedback loop, right? They yeah. they try one thing once and it works, and yeah, they do it more. And uh, yeah, you mentioned reality. Uh, uh huh. <laughs> this gets to, this gets to a very Bruno, very simulacrum uh, point which is a, a, he has this great section on factoids uh, and gosh, how did he put it? But he's talking about how um, it used to be the, you know, we would, we used to imagine that um, something was important and therefore it got dissemination through the media. Uh -huh. um, but that today things that get dissemination are important. Right. Right. Uh, that reality in a way is whatever gets disseminated um, widely enough, loudly enough. Right. Uh -huh. 
And so um, in a way, what these, the two sides, the two poles ultimately do, um, and the media contributes through, through this, through what it writes and what it ends up, um, is that they, they basically create their own alternative truths or post-truths. Um, <laughs> uh, it's all connected. It's all connected. All connected. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyhow, this doesn't uh, end well. And I guess, so maybe before we get to that, um, I'll I'll ask you the $10 million question. Uh Uh-oh. I didn't vote for him, okay. (laughs) (laughs) What, What replaces Trump as the polarizing topic? Or does anything, right? Or, or does he just continue to be it? I took, an, I took a wonderful note on that that I have to find. Okay. So that's the thing. Does he, does he realize what he has right now? You know what I mean? No. What do you mean? So does he, does he know, like not in his weird, like kind of sly, clever way that he seems to know stuff, but does he realize that he can he can be in everyone's business until the day he dies because the media needs him so much right right so if he realizes that then he will go and start a tv network or take over oam or whatever the hell that is uh, <laughs> or you know do whatever he wants to do and and never leave because you know he wants people talking about him and the media will never stop talking about him i guess but see i don't i'm not I... I don't know. Um, so I think the media talk about him because it sells papers, quote unquote, right? Sure. Um, it sells description. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, will it always, if he's not... If he's not in power. If he's not in power or close to being in power. I think the one way that maybe it happens is if he, once he leaves office if he immediately files um, his candidacy for 2024. Yes. Now that, that would definitely, right. Then you can just point to the impending fascist right. takeover. Right. And that it'll just be the, basically uh, an election cycle that starts immediately. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's the nightmare, <laughs> that's the nightmare <laughs> scenario for all of us. Um, yeah. And I mean, you know, I'm not going to, Okay, but like I know what the hell's going on, but yeah, yeah I, I think even at least for a few years, right? Because the incentive will be there to tie him to the Republicans. Um, I guess, but is that going to sell? Well, so let's think about what are they selling? Mm-hmm. They're not really selling like analysis of inter GOP politicking, right? They're selling orange man bad, Republicans bad, right? And maybe people would still want to consume that. Or, you know, let's say people on the left, political left, would still want to consume that, would still want to, would want that reinforced in their heads that these, uh, what, what did Hillary call them? Despicables? Deplorables. deplorables, right? Look at these deplorables. You know, we, we threw that guy out of office and they still love him. Aren't they, aren't they just as awful as we always thought? Yeah, but imagine if Hillary Clinton had a TV network, what would Fox News be talking about? (laughs) Yeah. So you remember, you need to have um, both sides converge on the same topic. Well, Trump would love to talk about Trump. Yeah, but he's not, but is he in like, I I guess maybe, I I, I guess maybe maybe it's just wishful thinking on my part. Um, But I think out of power, he's going to be, um, less of a, an issue, right? And I think a couple of things, right? Um, number one, he's not going to start a TV network. <laughs> I don't think he has. Work. <laughs> yes, he does not have the capacity to. Starting a cable channel is very expensive uh, and, and he is in debt, right? It's very expensive and it's very um, serious business that he does not have the capacity for. Um, I think more likely he could start a online digital service. Okay. Um, but you know what that is? That's called the blaze. Right? Sure. 
like who like it's not that doesn't really compete with news corporation uh i get it he's he's donald trump and i'm sure he'll get a lot of subscriptions um but i mean his core audience do they subscribe to streaming online services like do you know what i'm saying i I, I don't see it i think there's also going to be a look i think twitter is going to kick him off shortly after he leaves office like they did to uh his his minion is he going to threaten to behead somebody Oh, right. That's right. That's right. So, I mean, they're, I mean, they're just, yeah, they're going to wait for the first plausible violation of their, um, uh, you know, uh, acceptable use policy or whatever. Yeah. Take them off. And that, you know, just cuts them at the knees. Um, like our, yeah, they kicked off Alex Jones. They kicked off Steve Bannon, as you, as you say. They're going to kick him off. Um, and then, so maybe he'll start an online, uh, channel you know uh, an online platform directly to his people but these are older people who aren't really gonna i don't think really get that and even so how's he gonna do it is it gonna be app based is it gonna you're gonna get on your apple tv i don't know is apple gonna allow that on their platform yeah i didn't think of that yeah i was just imagining in one year's time a lot of like millennials and zoomers helping their parents install the trump tv (laughs) network app on their roku (laughs) (laughs) and just the the thanksgiving conversation assuming (laughs) we're allowed to have one Uh, (laughs) yeah so um unless he goes on the blockchain i don't see how he's gonna do that anyhow but here's the question though right suppose he dies tomorrow what is the topic that takes this place. I mean, and that, that's the good, that's the question, right? They need to find one, they, the royal they. Uh, yeah, all of them. The, all of them, right. Um, in a way though, I think the, like the left-leaning stations need it more because uh, like Fox News and all the rest, they're, they kind of pioneered it. Yeah. Just screaming about the, the MSM and the lamestream media and liberal bias, like they've been doing it for, for decades for so much longer and they kind of have it down uh, i think they might be okay because you can always find a college administrator or college professor that wants to like ban white people from the lunchroom on kwanzaa and that'll be like a week um there's always that going on but you know you kind of have to fear for msnbc and all, even the new york times yeah and he talks about it like is there what happens to the Trump bump or whatever you want to call it after Trump, uh, you know, you do have to wonder, like they, they can't possibly demonize like Nikki Haley or Tom Cotton as if anyone could pick him out of a lineup. Because they're, <laughs> they're, you know, they're, they're kind of too normal. They're too boring, even if their policies are probably even more to the right of, of Donald Trump. So you do have to kind of fear. And I wouldn't even know. I mean, maybe they will get lucky and like Sarah Palin <laughs> comes back or, or something like that, but um, like, well, like, like Mira says, like the environment is what's forcing them to do this. Like, right. obviously, they, a lot of these people are very partisan. Uh, if they weren't, they wouldn't work where they work. But um, the environment is going to have to force them to find something uh, yeah. to polarize over, or they're just going to sink. Because yeah, I, 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 th- I think it's just I, I, I don't see any you know, any readily available subject that becomes as central as Trump has been, right? Um, I'd love to know if, you know, if somebody has an idea about what that is. Um, so I think what you end up with is kind of like low grade, um, you know, warfare where it's drag queen story hour here and um, uh, somebody who refuses to issue gay marriage certificates over there. Right. And it just becomes, but that's not, that doesn't sustain. Those were the good old days, Jerry. Those were the good old days, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. Uh, because all that stuff you can just see on Twitter and Facebook, right? right. Um, the, so media goes away. 
So they're going to have to subsidize Trump TV somehow. Gonna, <laughs> no, I mean, like, you know, maybe that's, they're just going to bug him enough to where he just decides, you know, screw you. I ran for president once out of spite. I'll, I'll do it again. I'll do it again. Uh, I'll, I'll start a TV network out of spite or, you know, whatever. Um, no, but it could be that it just, that they don't find anything in these things. Or they out. don't. Yeah. Uh, and then we're just left in a world where you don't have journalism. It's just Fox News because they, they, they will have something to talk about. I guess. I'm kidding. Uh, uh, but in a world without journalism, uh, as much as it pains me to say, it's pretty bad. And he points out something that I've just, it's kind of obvious, but it's kind of like obvious, like water is to the fish. You're in it until you don't see it. That democracy, sort of industrial capitalism and journalism kind of all came up together and they're kind of independent on each other. Uh, and I, you know, if you get rid of, of journalism as we've known it, and you have different tribes with their own reality and they hate each other, uh, it's not good. Uh, no, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously what people told themselves about journalism is it holds the powerful to account. And that's not if, it. What's that? Go on, but that's not right. That's not, that's well, not, that wasn't the point. Well, sure. But, you know, that's kind of what the, why do you want to go to journalism school? Mm -hmm. What your high school guidance counselor would tell you is like, oh, they, you know, they tell important stories and um, hold powerful people to account. You know, that, that's what I think most people would say reporters were doing. Maybe not now, but like 30 years ago or 20 years ago. Um, so if there's not even that like facade, so, you know, he, he also talks about, in addition to, you know, speaking truth to power or telling the truth or all these other things, you know, he just talks about how the advertising model that developed in the 20th century, because of, you know, just the way it was structured, not really on purpose, helped to kind of center, you know, the audience, the population that because these newspapers didn't want to talk about labor issues or radical politics or any of that stuff or libertarian stuff for that matter, um, it kind of made everyone accept the same basic set of facts about America and the world. So that's also going to be going away. So it's right. not just, you know, the New York Times isn't going to cover what the, uh, the Harris administration is doing. Um, and Fox News will, and will never agree on what's actually happening. It's just these people are going to be living in completely. They might as well be living on different planets. Um, right. That's there will be no agreement on anything. Right. And it's not just you know that if you have a monopoly media uh, that is paid for by corporations, you end up with some anodyne shared facts that we can all agree. You know, which is kind of a, you know, those are halcyon days, right? It's not just yeah. that. It's that the alternative that you get is not just that you don't have shared facts, is that you end up with two sets of facts that are built on sort of grievance and resentment <laughs> that are not really facts, <laughs> right? They're they're just a vision of the world that is willed into being. Uh, and he talks about this toward the end of the book that, you know, the way that you solve this is to somehow give a voice to the middle, as he puts it. Right. Not, not the center, not the center. The middle, which is like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Where people can say, you know, you know, and you see this right with, especially now talking about, the 1619 project and, and on all that, which comes out of the New York times, by the way. Right. Um, to one tribe, the past is all um, sort of shame. Yeah. To, an, to the other tribe, the past is all glory and excluded from this. And this is kind of my point and his, you know, his point is, excluded is anybody who would say, well, it's complicated, right? It's not just that there aren't shared facts is that there's no possibility that there could be anything but simplistic <laughs> yeah. 
uh, polar opposite sets of quote unquote facts um, without journalism and without media. And I, I guess I just never, uh, again, it's like, you know, all these building blocks, <laughs> but you don't realize like, oh yeah, we're, we're fucked. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, it really just seems to have already happened. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it doesn't seem like this is in the future. Right. It's, it's here and it's kind of been here for a while, uh, at least to me. Um, or it's rapidly approaching that point where, yes, there are a few things that people can agree on. But it seems that as soon as there's any, like a little nook, a little finger hold where you can kind of pry this thing into being like a partisan issue, just give it like three weeks <laughs> and it will be like, you know, Republicans are all wearing like colanders on their heads and Democrats don't wear shoes anymore. And it's like, well, yeah, it, obviously this is... COVID was fascist. <laughs> COVID illustrated this beautifully. Right. Right. With remember, I mean, the masks were, uh, you know, originally the, the media was all about how people in Silicon Valley uh, were alarmist morons were wearing masks. Yes. And it's, and it's just a flu and listen to the science. Uh, and how did that turn out? Anyhow, Listen, they, they changed their mind. That's right. They, uh, the facts changed and they, they changed their mind. That's true. That's the story I'll just keep telling myself. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, I would recommend this book. It's, um, again, understand going in that it is not a typical book from a typical publisher. <laughs> so yeah. stick with it. There's a lot of insight throughout it. Uh, you would recommend that I take it. I, I think I would. Um, I wonder if somebody after this podcast, after this podcast drops, and um, you know everyone hears about it, uh, if it's going to get uh, like a publisher will pick it up. Strike press. Yeah, yeah. Always out there. Yeah, and kind of uh, prune it, edit it up, kind of tighten it up, because I think there is a lot there, and it could probably be half the length. Yeah, <laughs> if not even less, um, but. Uh, the, the nice thing about the repetition is you can kind of dip in and out because uh, <laughs> you're going to hear the same thing again um, multiple times. But yeah, I think you I definitely recommend it. All right. So next time um, we're doing a double header. Oh yeah. Um, because you suggested um, that we do uh, white shift populism, immigration, and the future of white majorities by Eric Coffin. That's right. Uh, and do you want to tell us what that is? I mean, wasn't the title long enough? <laughs> so who's Eric Coffin? He's a... He is a political scientist. scientist. Yep. I think he's some sort of Canadian. Yeah. Um, but as, he... As is Mir, apparently, right? Russian-Canadian. Yes, yes. Well, I guess he lives in Canada, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, Eric Coffin is Canadian. Jewish, uh, and he teaches in uh, London, I think at Burbeck College. Um, and it was a very, uh, I did buy this book a while ago and started reading it. It's a little long, a little dense, but um, I think it's going to be very much worth it. Um, so what are some of the reviews? A big controversial book about a big controversial topic. Um, so it, I think the thesis is that white identity politics is here slash coming soon and it needs to be taken seriously and not just uh, taken seriously and studied and not just uh, called white supremacy and kind of ignored. Right. So I think that's the, the general thesis of the book. All right. And, and so Jerry, Jerry recommended. Yeah. So I couldn't <laughs> leave well enough alone uh, that we had sort of a, a more Six, normal book. 600 page book. Uh, is it really? Yes, Jerry. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> Lots of footnotes, though, I'm sure. Okay. I said, um, well, look, if we're doing that, we should also do, to balance it out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure Eric Kaufman is pro-white identity politics. Well, but you know what I mean. Sure. Uh, I suggested that we do uh, Kevin Williamson's new book, which is out in the week, uh, Big White Ghetto, 
dead broke, stone cold, stupid, and high on rage in the dank, woolly wilds of the quote unquote real America. So, uh, you know, Kevin Williamson, who I love, um, basically not giving the time of day to white identity politics. Um, although I think he is sympathetic, uh, he is not empathetic uh, or something like that. So, so <laughs> we're going to try to do reverse. <laughs> we're going to try to do two and compare and contrast and all that. Yeah. And, and in his book, by the way, is journalistic and uh, fun, right? Not dense. <laughs> what are you saying? You saying white shift isn't going to be fun? <laughs> uh, all right. See you in a couple of weeks. All right, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs>